Hey, yo, artists and musicians. Who, us? Yeah, do you want your own vinyl records? Yeah, but I can't order a thousand of them. Or wait like a year to get them. Yeah, we're going on tour in two months. Check out our friends lathecuts.com. They'll make you vinyl singles in quantities as small as 50 copies in as quickly as three or four weeks. Get out of here. You heard me right. All their pricing is a la carte, and they can help you pick a package that fits your budget. Okay, who will we talk to about this? You need to email my buddy Mike. His address is lathecuts at yahoo.com. And if you mention low profile, you'll get a 10% overrun on your order. So if I order 50 records... Mike's going to send you 55. If I order 75, I guess you would get 82 and a half? Something like that. Remember, you got to mention low profile to get that deal, and it won't be around forever. What was that address again? That's lathecuts at yahoo.com. Custom-made records in small quantities. Mention low profile to get a 10% overrun on your order. And emailing now. Hey, it's, it's Markley here with Jason and Miles. Yo. Hey. And about, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago, I was on tour with the band Lake and... Ashley in the band, she uh, she said, hey, you guys ever heard of Bobby Brown? I'm like, uh, yeah, I love New Edition. <laughs> and she's like, no, no, Bobby Brown before that. I'm like, what? She's like, oh, here, check it out. And she had a tape that uh, a friend had made for her. And I did not expect to, for Bobby Brown to sound like this. Bobby Frank Brown, as he is currently known, um, probably just so there's not as much confusion, uh, he is a one-man band. So I've got his second album right over here called Bobby Brown Live. composed of about 50 instruments 
It contained 300 strings and took three hours to set up and tune. Instruments varied from a tiny electrified string to a monstrous 15-foot electrified drone. Whoa. Some were of original invention, while others were electrified versions of instruments found around the world. Say an electrified drum? Electrified drone. Oh, I don't even know what that means. Maybe like one... A 15-foot electrified drone. Maybe like one string or something? A theremin or something? Could be. A yeah. giant theremin? Anyway, it goes on to say later, um, this album was recorded one-man band style, hands and feet a-going. Um, and then he talks about having open for Fleetwood Mac um, and recording that show and wanting to use that for the live album originally, but the tapes didn't come out the way he hoped, so he just recorded it on the beach uh, in front of his van with his dog there, and that's Bobby Brown Live. And, uh, yeah, he's... I, I, I was pretty curious when I first heard that, and then I randomly found uh, the live album one day uh, here in town at Rainy Day Records. It's like a pretty beat-up copy, and it's uh, got a dish warp, which is like, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it plays like a little scratchy sound throughout the whole, the whole album. Then, so that that's his live album, and then recently, uh, in the last year, his third album, which is from the early '80s, called "Prayers of a One Man Band," that got reissued by Del Rio Tapes and Records, and uh, he's got this just amazing sound on here, and I'm gonna play a little bit of that for you guys. This song is called Hawaii Nay I'll Miss You. Oh sweet Hawaii Nay, I'm gonna miss you. one guy to be doing yeah. all at the same time then no no overdubs i'm not sure if there's overdubs on there or not it kind of sounds like there must be with all the layered well, vocals also, and like, everything multiple voices yeah. yeah but 
the the live album he does a lot of these same songs and they sound just a little bit thinner but also like really rich because they're, i don't know because it's just a recording of it happening i really like all the little kind of jaunty poppy keyboards in there but it's like so otherworldly yeah like the voice of like a lounge singer almost of a lounge singer yeah at least yeah it, it reminds me of like tom jones almost yeah totally like it's very like like a celestial lounge singer but then he comes in with like those high notes like right there yeah he's got quite the range yeah um allegedly six octaves what i don't know if he's still hung on to those but i I've been curious about this guy and like just kind of looking him up every every once in a while since I first heard him like a decade ago. And um, then, like I said, I stumbled across the live one and then I just would do a little Google search every once in a while, every few years or something. And happened to catch this album come out uh, just a little bit before I started working on this show. So... Um, like he was on the top of my list for people I wanted to but it's from 1983 this one it says 1982 so this is the most recent release that I that I know of um I know he self-released his albums originally and just like toured around like driving around in his van or traveling around the world playing music in the streets Mm -hmm. and selling his albums like you know in person so like the the live album i have is autographed i'm guessing he probably signed every copy that got printed but i wrote to del rio records and tapes and uh it took a few months but uh he's put me in touch with bobby and we're gonna give him a call and i have no idea what's about to happen Hmm. but I have a feeling it's not going to be boring. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, that said, we'll hear a little bit more Bobby Brown here. And then we're going to give him a call. Hello. Hello. 
Is this is yeah. this the Bobby Brown? Yes. Bobby Frank Brown? Yes. Well, we're we're happy to talk to you. Uh, this is Markley, and uh, I'm here with Jason and Miles. Hello. Hey, how's it going, Bobby? Good. Did you read uh, those things I sent you? The full thing? <clears throat> yeah, totally. Sure did. And we just read over the liner notes on the live album as well to get sort of a understanding of your your uh, one man band setup that you were using back then. Well, I rebuilt seven times. I'm trying to put up seven albums, and there's kind of a correspondence to each album. So there's a whole bunch of inventions over the years. Are you still taking it out and performing places? Well, the last thing I did, the only time I didn't go to a country and set up and play in the street and meet people and stay with them and stay as long as I want, you know, total freedom. Money was really great and I could do whatever I want. It was so good, I just stayed away from going back to what I had in L.A. started with Warner Brothers and stuff, but to answer the question, uh, last, let's see, it's been about a year and a half. Well, it's been close to close to two years. I went over to Denmark in a regular tour, and that was the last time I really played. They, they, it was, they had some festivals, and uh, you know, they put me in hotels and the whole thing. You know, cars pick you up and take you and. And uh, that was the last time. That was in Denmark and Brussels. And then I, on my own, I, the last place I played was I went over to Scotland because I hadn't been there. Oh, wow. How was Scotland for you? You know, after Denmark, Scotland was kind of gloomy. And Denmark is painted orange, all the, you know, not only... They have a lot of beautiful girls in Denmark all over the place, but I mean, I like Irish, you know, and Scottish girls too. I've, boy, but it was Glasgow is kind of gray, uh, and you have to walk. They they should have won some of their wars. Uh, Mel Gibson might have noted they had to be in shape to walk up to the castle. Man, they had to walk a long ways. Um, you know, the Braveheart, you saw that movie, you know? Sure. I'm just throwing that, that, that uh, the way it's built, Glasgow, you, you, you go up to the castle and you really got to walk a lot of stairs and a lot. Have you been there? I have never been to Scotland, no. But, you know, Denmark, you fly in and there's everywhere all these uh, windmills in the sea. Yeah. And then you see all bicycles and so I, many, I have the, been to Denmark and yeah, lots of windmills and even more bicycles. But then I got into the place and they were all smoking. <laughs> that was truly a little setback. Yeah, I mean I was going outside uh to get fresh air and stuff and coming back in and most of the thing of traveling you realize uh conformity of cultures that they lock onto. Uh, I don't 
really like uh, rap music. Uh, I used to love soul. I was very involved in being an athlete and stuff with a lot of blacks and stuff. And I started boxing in, in junior high and through high school, you know, my friends and then the track later on. But I don't like rap music. And I had a guy the other day said, you're insulted by culture. It's like uh, you said, what don't you like? And I said, you have an hour. But anyway, um, it's, it's it's kind of a formative factor of smoking, I guess, ties into what I'm saying. That we have a huge conformity factor here on drugs and, and, and the people. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I bet if people listened to rap 20 years ago and they had to write an expose about what it is and how they related to it, they'd probably say that would be music that you might play to torture somebody. Uh, the, the Eminem's latest song was so fast and did it, did it, no melody. And by the way, I think it's very easy to do that type of music and it knocks out all the great singers, black and white. Oh, okay, I don't know that, about that. There's some real complex rhyme schemes with some rappers, Bobby. Some real complex what? Rhyme schemes, you know, like their rhyme structure in their songs is very complex. Oh, yeah, rhyming. And, oh, melo- and, and melo- you know, melody, I don't know. Oh, I would me- oh, well, rhyme play. Yeah. Oh, melody. Uh, I think that, I mean, most of the melodies that are good are, they kind of, they sample them kind of from, from the past melody a lot of them. Well, I'm sure there's a few, there's always exceptions. Yeah, but isn't that but, like uh, part of a great folk tradition, you know? Like, like don't, didn't traditional songs do that all the time too, you know? Now, extrapolate a bit more. Well, Bobby, I wanted to take it back to the beginning of your your uh, like when you first made the enlightening beam of Exonda and how you got from there or how you how you got to that place that it's it's kind of a it's a mind-blowing strong first album uh that just kind of out of the blue something so ethereal and otherworldly it it's loaded with prophecy in physics that is coming true now uh I, I went. I worked on the doctorate there for a while. In fact, I was I, I was uh, throwing the javelin at San Jose State, and I used up my eligibility. And I stayed there and got the master's credential. You said you were throwing a javelin. Yeah, I I was fifth in the nation in the uh, when I was in college at at Eugene. Uh, I threw only 229, placed me fifth. But a few years later, well, three, let's see, about three and a half years later, I, I equaled the winning mark 271 in a practice throw. That was, uh, when I started out, that wasn't exactly what I was shooting for. I mean, I didn't know I was going for the world record or whatever, who knows. But anyway, when I hit that, I quit the next day. But getting back to... Well, I was training for the Olympics, so when I went down to UCLA and I had these two earrings, and partly I was protesting. I was very involved in the in the black culture, right? I 
In fact, Tommy Smith, you remember him that raised his hand at Mexico City, uh, the Black Power salute in the Olympics? But you, you hear about Kaepernick, right? You, you, know, you, sure. you know him? His book. Okay, well, they always go back to Tommy. That was the original. And those were my teammates. Uh, Harry Edwards, it's, he was the race coach for the 49ers, and then he went on to Berkeley. He instigated much of it. At the Olympics, 68 Olympics, um, uh, another teammate of mine was Lee Evans. He set a world record in the quarter. Anyway, when they got on the podium, they wore berets. So it was just Tommy and I having a dinner together in the village. I didn't. I don't want to mislead you. I didn't. They take the top three. When I placed fifth in NC2A, there's there's more to the story, but they take the top three. But I went went down there. We we um, thought he was just going to wear a, a beret or a band armband around it. Reason I'm saying this is I was very involved when I I have the street cred to to say I don't like rap music and and from all the boxing and all the stuff I did. Muhammad Ali's coach was uh, uh, Julian Menendez. He was at San Jose State and. We were national boxing champions. I boxed Lester Barnes. He wanted me to box up at uh, against the Nevada guys. It's a long story that uh, one one of his boxers killed a guy, and they banned NC2A. So it's going to be just uh, intramurals. Anyway, to tie this up, here I am at UCLA, and I, I mean I'm, I'm kind of pointing out one of the ways I traveled around eighty. 81 countries, I had a, I, I slip out in places, and I, oh, you know, I, even as an old guy, I'm supposed to be old, but I'll jump in to protect somebody if, you know, I had that, that chutzpah to do it and travel the way I did, but anyway, here I am at UCLA working on the doctor, and I'm out there, I had these earrings protesting the treatment and, and the Vietnam War, and they took a vote in the 60s there, or 67. And they took a vote, and they voted me off. I couldn't train there. So I went up to Santa Barbara, and that's where I started building the instruments. Uh, I was teaching school and, and living in a school bus, and uh, that's where you hear about Jenner, Bruce Jenner. Uh, he, I used to counsel him on, on, on how, to, how to get down to L.A. and make it. My best friend was Russ Hodge, and he was... The world record in the whole older in the decathlon, but Bill Toomey won the gold medal. Russ was probably the best athlete that ever lived. A lot of people would have attested to that. But anyway, he messed up, uh, he got hurt and stuff. But anyway, uh, the, all the athletes from around the world came there to Santa Barbara and living in the school bus and at the University of Isla Vista there. Just a great experience, you know, girls, beautiful girls on the beach and and it was a great life, but I was building my instruments. Well, I met John Lazelle, and he knew how to make pickups. Uh, he, he had made some instruments, and he had made this two-foot, let's see, about one-and-a-half-foot uh, drone with a lot of strings on it. Hmm. He made a, a, a very heavy sitar, and he made uh, really huge drums. Well... It started me off. I was helping some guys build dulcimers there. I really liked dulcimers. And to have an electric pickup of any size, you could alter 
your instruments. And so I made this drone about uh, around seven feet long that, that you hear in Exonda a lot, you know, and then you hear it's a... Uh, okay, well, that went on. So it's that just some really been, long strings in a box? Well, it's not a box. It's a, it's a very... Well, what I did was mine was made out of wood. John wanted to make everything heavy because it resonated longer. Yeah. My idea make it compact as possible. And every time I've rebuilt the seven over the years, it's gotten, uh, you know, smaller. But anyway, the drone, uh, John then made, I came over one night and he says, I want to see something. Well, it was just like really big, like 12 foot, really heavy uh, metal piece of, I mean, it was like a, an iron thing that, pick it up it was very heavy actually you know but anyway that drone uh he played it for grateful dead it it, it my he used uh, a thing off my dad's my dad had reno truck service and took it out in the middle of nowhere and built uh truck and anyway he's he's a very good inventor himself for cummings and a few things and anyway without a real pioneer guy out in the middle of nowhere doing that but off his truck I got this thing to play you you it's like a big bar and John made this great music on it he even gave a few concerts around Santa Barbara and it was very spiritual very ethereal but it came first from his Eight is one and a half footer. It inspired my. So I like to give him the credit, though. Even mine was a big bait. Well, I kept trying to get him to do a one man show where he would play these huge drums, these rainmakers. They were huge. Uh, uh, it'd take three people to reach around one of them, probably. Well, at least two. Anyway, this. Drone, he, he, John built the uh, sound system with Jeff Cook for the Grateful Dead. Now, Mickey Hart saw that, uh, John playing it, and he plays it now and then. And in his book, I was hoping he'd give John credit, but he didn't do it. But anyway, that went on. I went over to the house in Davis, and people said they invented an instrument. Well, there it was, the drone. But it's been in Star Wars and uh, a lot of things. Uh, but I, I rather than take the credit because I wanted John to have this big bassy thing that he could play his drums and then reach over and play a couple of drones, you know, with mallets and keep the whole thing going and put it through an echo. That's what I oh, kind of yeah. had in mind. You know, but anyway, that's the story of the drone. Uh, that that, that it was just, but, but also... I made the first uh, portable synthesizer because a guy named Mike Woods was there in Santa Barbara. John had worked at a radio shack, and he was really good with electronics. So Mike Woods made him a little oscillating. Uh, he just It was a very small one. Well, I, I made mine bigger. That was the voice of Exonda, and I ran it through a wah-wah pedal. But... I guess you could say it was the first portable synthesizer. I mean, yeah. you know, it came out before Moog's thing did. Wow. It was, Moog came out at 71, and I had mine in, what, I don't know, 
69 or something anyway. But there was a whole bunch of inventions. Uh, at UCLA, when I worked in the doctorate, I'd go down in the Ethnomusicology building, and it was just so great, all these instruments all over the place. Well, one guy, they nobody knew who did it, made a square drum, and it had the ability to be tuned with little wedges inside. It was like a framework inside of a square. You put the skin on, and you're able to put pressure up from this inside smaller square pushing up on the the skin so i made seven of those of varying sizes and i went to barcus berry and put pickups in them so they were the first electric electroacoustic drums i don't know what you say exactly that sounds about even right that, yeah yeah you know even that is iffy because barcus berry had made some some other people probably put on their their kick drum, uh, one of Barcus Berry's things by then, who knows. But anyway, and I'd go to the Dom convention they had down in L.A., and, and some, some of the inventions I had were showing up there um, gradually over the years, you know. But anyway, anyway, eh, I could tell you about those first instruments and all that. The thing about it was, okay, I, I sang in... Uh, in a church in uh, Santa Barbara, and a guy named Ed Hass came up to me and, and said, is there anything you could do? He was an engineering student, this great kid, you know. Uh, he actually died about a year after this on a sailing accident, and I sang at his funeral. So I retired a motherless child that I sang on. Anyway, so anyway, he came up. So he built me. Um, he asked me what I'd like it to do. I bought a $350 tape recorder, so I had this great echo that I could take out, but it was a loop pedal. So I was the first person, I think, that had a loop pedal. But I made a decision, and that's really, everywhere you go now, people are playing with loop pedals. Sure. The edge, you know, and, you know, it's a very common thing. And I'd like Ed Hass to get the credit. He died, and it was a brilliant thing what he did. I, I had a... Uh, more options even than, than some of the loop pedals today that are digital. Uh, he gave me a sound-on-sound sound thing that was we ran it through Echo. Well, I could do a lot of things with it anyway. But yeah, I well, the things that are handmade, you can finesse a little better, I think, is what it comes down to. It can become an, its own instrument rather than just a machine built to do something, to do one thing. You can make it do whatever you want. Well, the evolution, what I'd like to get credit for, and it's never been really analyzed, is the evolution of what solo performers do, because I pioneered all this electronics. And when I opened the Fleetwood Mac in Santa Barbara and I turned on my my <clears throat> my electronics, the bass sound, everybody went, whoa, you know, I had an ethereal intro but anyway that was the beginning of these big bass sounds and rap music too i feel and, and which is a dilemma for me because i didn't want to go out and have people mistake me for that that vibe necessarily because the way i used it was a a very um spiritual thing i'm sure. in my motor i'm, I'm peeing in a in the p jar i hope you can't hear it <laughs> <laughs> 
Speaking of voices, Bobby, your uh, your albums make references to something about three hundred comedic voices and a series of yeah. seven albums. And uh, am I correct that three of these albums have become available, or is there more out there that you've sold to people? I had three, and then I had four. I put one on a like a set. I was going around. The, Eastern Europe, and uh, I kind of missed out on this whole CD thing, and so I was just making up some cassettes and, and practically giving them away for some of the Eastern countries I went to, um, Eastern Europe countries. Um, my my friend Mike told me to ask him why he found an eight track of Bobby Brown Live in Granite City, Illinois. Yeah, I did that just very briefly. Uh, they didn't want me. I would go to flea markets. Uh, I would, uh, I guess you could say the first successful indie label manifested itself in flea markets. There was sure. another guy uh, in the L.A. area that, that had, he was from Jim, down in the Caribbean, and he, he had some guys that played steel drums, a bunch of kids. He go around and they were they were real good on these and they'd set up and so we were in competition uh we, we were the only people you'd see out like that had an album jim doyle at rainbow records told me that this was the first him and i were the first uh people doing i guess essentially he didn't use the word indie label but we but my girlfriend carol klein I gave her a harp, and you, you want to look up uh, her story too, Carol Klein, because uh, she went out on Drag City Records. Uh, oh, wow! And she, there's a lot of story there about Carol. A harp player? Yeah. Well, her daughter does all the finance stuff for the big tour. She was she's uh, Beyonce's accountant, <laughs> and all the Sam Smith and all these. And anyway, her daughter's a pretty amazing young, young young gal, boy. Anyway, and her sister, her IQ was in the mid 170s. So Carol gave her the harp, and and uh, there's a good story about her. And she sings really beautifully, and and her her ability to play the harp was really amazing because she was good on the piano, and she kind of put that onto it where my heart playing was totally search and pluck and figure it out, you know, over the years. But anyway, she has a really good story there. Our story together is, is really good. Uh, people said we should make a film of that, you know, because then she, she, she ended up touring with Greg Allman uh, when he went on a solo tour. He was sitting on my bed one time, Greg didn't get to know him very well but anyway anyway so carol that's that's that story she was well let me say this that she helped me make my pickups and i wrote on the album that exonda is because of carol well she would she was helping support it and uh, when i was making the instruments and doing stuff she was 
going out and playing her harp and but she but what I was tying this all to that that her uh Carl Knight's you know kids and myself were probably the first uh indie labels that Bud Sorkin was the the guy at the LA uh he was the I think the president of the music uh oh whatever you call it uh uh, whatever. Anyway, he said that the, his favorite albums were mine and Carol's. Well, uh, there's there's another guy that put out an album. I tried to. He kind of took the ideas I had in my show and helped me set up and everything. And and finally, well, he bought John's instruments, and he would he had success as a as a. Uh, there's a story. I know I'm just rambling on you. That's why I wrote those things. See, if you would have yeah. just read those, I don't have to brag. And I, and I can just answer humbly, because being humble is a great... I'm really humble. I live on a bike for 12 years. I have my mom's and dad's car just parked. I yeah, you've done, a lot of, you've done a lot of hard traveling, right? Just Well, I don't even call it hard. I just, just love to... To hobo it, you know, and I love well the theme and the music. Are, I get a lot of real life jokes from from living uh, as a hobo. Uh, I, I identify with that, and I, I like my angels. They complain about it's a long story. All the jokes I got that about the hobo stuff, but anyway, Drag City offered me a really good thing to pay for. Uh, they're going to buy up front several albums, all four plus the CDs and the DVDs. Uh, but I messed up. I had spiritual feelings of waiting and waiting and waiting. I wasn't ready, uh, and I plus I did the artwork a little differently than they wanted me to do. But I passed on that, mm -hmm. and I'm with now with Light in the Attic. Uh, they are very much on my side and, and they may not promote me as much as uh, Drag City did but anyway Drag City did Carol the point I'm trying to make now is that I'm not like somebody in the past and that's what I'm I'm thinking of the future in my stuff I'm, I'm really thinking that my singing is better now than it ever was and the songs are better and the concept I'll, I'll kind of clarify these seven albums. There was three. There was one on a cassette. I mean, you know, cassette in Eastern Europe or something. I have four now. But I'm going to take, I just decided today, I've been going back and forth. It's not very interesting. But let me limit it down. The three, five, six, and seven, or four, five, six, and seven, are going to be like a, a radio show in space and we're trying to get Exonda built and my, I have help with angels and it's a comedy and, and uh, I have a, a lot of hope of you know Harry Potter look out you know no I'm serious I'm going to write books you know what I mean I'm not done here hopefully God willing I really um, I, I'm really intrigued by um your live album and my favorite my favorite one on there is the waterfall of love 
record that on the beach i know you were trying to recreate the fleetwood mac show that you opened actually what i did was when i opened for fleetwood mac like chuck plotkin i i had a chuck plotkin does all the springsteen he did dylan and bet Midler and all kinds of harry chapin all kinds of people mm-hmm. uh, just put in charge of electro well he was my manager but john hartman uh, John Hartman's brother was Phil Hartman, yeah, the guy that yeah. Saturday Night Live. I love Phil Hartman. America over at Warner Brothers. John had eventually uh, Cosby, Stills, and Nash, and Ringo through another group. John had a lot to do with several acts, and so I had these two great managers. I had on the on the liner notes you see Mike North. Uh, Mike North was Carol's. Um, Carol lived above a garage, uh, and Mike North who was the main guy, him and Dan Weiner, as far as uh, agents, you know, and that quote on there that what he told me was, I've seen all the superstars, uh, at least heard them, and 
I have the most talent he ever saw. Well, he was going to put me on tour once I got the record deal. I mentioned Wolfman Jack. I used to go around winning uh, dance contests. I know it sounds like bragging, but it's true. But anyway, Wolfman Jack would have helped promote me because he was the head. You know, he really liked me, my dancing, and you know all this stuff. And he was a really nice guy. And, but I had all this, all this thing going in L.A. Um, to all this momentum. All I had to do was agree with a couple changes. Uh, John Hartman wanted to do, and Chuck, when he took over Electra Silent, he couldn't manage me, so he wanted me to go with Norman, and I was kind of in the process of all that, but I, what I did was, though, I took that, all those instruments, and I went up and rebuilt them all, so here's the point I was getting to, the, the live album, he asked how did I record it, well, I totally rebuilt everything, and it was a lot smaller. I had a four-track uh, tape recorder, and I, I had a plug-in and stuff at somebody's house. So I recorded that in my van. Well, I think it's I think it's beautiful that you recorded it in the van because it sounds very intimate, and uh, you sound yeah. very uninhibited. And uh, I feel like I don't know. I, I feel like just so much heart comes across in that, and that's. Um, I think the the biggest thing I've ever taken away from your music is that it, it's got a lot of heart, and um, it's you, you're 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 unhinged as an artist, and it, it really shines. And I really look forward to hearing hearing more in the future. Uh, the, the rest of the albums, the, the films. I think someone should make a movie of your life, honestly. That would be that would be really something. travels and everything and I, I have this thing about making books with pictures uh, I, I'm kind of gearing it to include children I mean I'm dipping down it's very clean no bad words and you know and but you really hit a thing on the head there uh, and it, it ties in with honesty too I don't know but you sing from the heart you know it, it's a it's a very the ethereal things um, just I was gonna eventually point out when I had that ability to do the overdubs and live with that uh, loop thing. I didn't do it. I, I, I decided I was running down the hill at six in the morning in Laguna Beach with Carol there, and I said, you know what? I'm not gonna use the pedal. I'm gonna slow everything down and just do what I could do with these instruments, going from one to the other. Yeah. Now, here's the big thing. If I would have 
that made it very from the heart, slow and very spiritual, more, you know, super powerful. Uh, and I played to get Leary out of jail. Alan Ginsberg played, Carol and Tony Sauvage played a little thing. And, uh, he, he helped her on the violin and she played harp and sang. And Alan Ginsberg did a thing. And, and what he told the audience was what what you have just seen is by far the most talented and advanced of a new type of music that's beginning to emerge. Well, that was the beginning of New Age, I think. That was the, it was an Eagle Auditorium to get Leary out of Lompoc Jail. Johnny Rivers came and sent his gal to my house. I wanted to, I didn't know. I said I wanted to produce myself, so I passed on it. I didn't know he broke the fifth dimensions on his Soul City Records. Yeah, you know, yeah. Up, up and away. And I didn't know. I should have went. That would have been a great thing to go with Johnny. And if you're listening or whatever, I, I really want to sit and talk to you somebody. That would have been so good. Yeah. But what I'm gone saying a is... Very that, different direction, I imagine. Yeah. What, what the thing was, though, is that was very ethereal and very spiritual. And Allen Ginsberg uh, really felt that too you know i was gonna throw, throw something in about him but anyway the the live album and what i took around making i never made any money with the, the big setup i only performed it here and there the troubadour um the, you know about the troubadour in la yeah it's yeah. a classic venue there it's, a... it's where everybody come doug weston one of the quotes is Doug Weston. I, he was really a friend of mine, saying that he didn't know if it would catch on. It was really different. But when I said, you, you know, it was the, probably the best uh, response you ever had at at the Hoot. And, that, and everybody that ever comes to L.A. plays the Hoot to try to get a record deal. And he, he said yes to that. But he, I mean, I had really great responses there. Uh, Kenny Loggins was in the audience. That one I got his court i hung out with him after and he said what well, uh, he said it was the most incredible thing he ever saw it was like a, a giant wave slowly building and breaking on him and, and Schiffman and larson i almost went with them as managers uh it was very funny tying the story back i know it was babbling about all this stuff but but uh larry larson was a fisig and I was, uh, I didn't want to join a fraternity, but I played quarterback for him. And we were undefeated and all this stuff. And uh, it was great. Fice, you know, so I had this connection with Larry Larson to go with them. But I ended up uh, going with John Hartman and Chuck. But anyway, I know I'm rambling on, but this connects. Here, here's the connection it makes that when I switched to making money, and going to flea markets and playing and, and you know, a little bit of fairs. And then it went to Hawaii and did that. I loved that and everything. Then it went to going to all these countries around the world. Um, one thing I should point out, it, it you're not going to be known that way. I mean, I, in Australia, I had incredible responses. I could have stayed there and, like, been really famous really quick. I mean, it was incredible what happened. But then I would just take off and go over to New Zealand and go. And so all that time, but the, I guess the key thing I was going to say, that 
set of instruments on the live was more of a, it was from the heart and everything, and it really is, but it, it had, I was pioneering some of the beats and stuff, you know, that people use yeah, now. Yeah, very much. So it had more, it, it's not that using beats takes away from the heart, but the ethereal Alexander was a very spiritual, you could cut it with a knife, that was very spiritual. Well, I don't want to lose that in this comedic thing. So I've got to learn. I want to make a rock opera of albums. I say it this way, four, five, six, and seven. Because I decided to use some of the full songs from four. Like I say, that's not very interesting. But uh, I'll shut up and ask me another question. <laughs> well, I've actually, I've, uh, I've got to go put my kids to bed in a minute here. And I was wondering if we could uh, yeah. sum up how... What what do you want on your tombstone? Uh, a key, a key to heaven. Uh, that's just an original answer. I hope. Yeah, that's just thought of it. That's beautiful. Um, would you mind? Would yeah, you mind singing uh, us a few bars again before we part ways? Oh, that there. sounds great. That? Yeah, sounds great. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I've added lows. I've got, I've got a lot of lows, and I've, I've even taken my highs further. Um, it's really uh, not always do you get these harmonic sounds, but it seems like it, it jumped up another bunch there. Yeah. You want me to sleep more? I like to, hey, Joe, you know, like, like you soft voices and, you know, the fire. You know, I like to, my voice is like, well, holy cow, you know, we have to try to go down and see what's going on. Yeah, well. You know, it, it all, it's all musical, you know. I said, do we have a bench We don't have nothing. Well, they gotta, they gotta live like hobos, like me. That's where the comedy comes in. So. <laughs> and they're trying to get, you know what I'm saying? Yep. Is that good enough? That's terrific, Bobby. Thank you so much for your time. You're a man of many talents, and I'm sure that a lot of people are going to be seeking you out. And we hope to hear from you again soon. Go, go to cdbaby.com.